50 seasons of New York Islanders hockey. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth straight Stanley Cup. A once-in-a-lifetime celebration. Oh, my goodness, Ryan Pollock saved the game! This is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome you into another edition of Talk at Isles, the New York Islanders official interview-based podcast presented by Betway. I'm Greg Picker, the radio color commentator for the team, joined alongside by the director of digital for the New York Islanders, Corey Wright. Today, we welcome in Ray Ferraro, played 1,258 games in the National Hockey League, 316 of those with the New York Islanders, but most well-known during his Islander tenure for the 1993 run and upset over the Pittsburgh Penguins. A lot of fun getting to talk to Ray Ferraro. Obviously, we talked about 1993 and that whole run. Ray was a very big part of that, but also a lot of fun to talk to Ray about his time in Hartford with the Whalers, his time in Atlanta with the Thrashers. Talked about being a pretty good baseball player, going to the Little League World Series. And of course, Ray has been in everyone's living rooms as a broadcaster for the last 20 plus years. So a lot of fun to talk to him about his Islander days his NHL days, and his broadcasting career. So a lot of ground to cover here with Ray, but fun chat as always. And here he is, Ray Ferraro. Flatley puts it in the corner. Here's Hall with Ferraro in front. The pass, the goal! And it is one! No doubt about this one. It's Ray Ferraro goal, isn't it? Time to welcome in Ray Ferraro to the Talking Isles podcast. And Ray, yes, you are an esteemed hockey player throughout your entire career, and you've made a living of it even after your post-playing career. But you started off uh, as a pretty strong baseball player as well, represented mm. Canada in the 1976 Little League World Series. What was that like, getting to go to Williamsport when you were 12 years old? I'm really lucky to have done a lot of really fun, cool things. You know, like my career, you know, my hockey career, which is all I ever dreamed of. And then to be able to do this for now, this is over 20 years to broadcast. But honestly, one of the highlights of my life is that summer of 1976. And, you know, we had 19 players try out for our team. Our trail is 7,500 people where I'm from. We had 19 players try out. Somehow, you know, it was the right collection of players. And we got to go, you know, we won the provincial championship we won the canadian championship we went to williamsport baseball is it's neck and neck for me my favorite has always been my favorite sport i love baseball and uh i just oh man i just love that trip it was it was so fun it was i'd never been on a plane before now you know i'm flying to toronto and then montreal and then to williamsport and they took us to washington dc after and saw Reggie Jackson was playing for the Baltimore Orioles that summer, which is kind of crazy. And it was just an amazing, amazing summer. We were gone all summer, literally two months, and came back and they had a little parade for us in trail. And we uh, went to school the next week. It was it was really cool. Yeah, I'm not sure if people out east really realized how much of a hotbed for baseball bc is jason bay also from mm. trail justin morneau from new west rich harden yep. played for the oakland a's back in the day larry walker i want to say larry walker yeah larry maple walker ridge, maple ridge yep. bc and also a lot of islander former islanders have some pretty big baseball careers which uh, we've gotten into in some previous pods but turge went uh, turge went to the world series 
Terch did go to the World Series. I was thinking more of the yeah. Clark Gillies, Bob Bourne down in uh, the Houston Astros yeah. uh, minor league no, system. Terch was, Terch was a hell of a pitcher back in the day. I don't think I really realized that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there you go. See, there's information everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, shifting ahead to your junior hockey days, I mean, you had an astounding year with the Brandon Wheat Kings, 108 goals in 72 mm. games believe that is the record in the dub so take us through your time playing in junior i mean how do you have a season like that where you just explode for 100 goals a little bit of a story to that was that i wanted to go uh to college and i had a scholarship or i went about four hours from home's uh, town penticton bc which is a really storied franchise in junior hockey in Canada, very successful as far as helping players get on to college in the, Uni in the United States. And so I went there, got a scholarship to Northern Michigan University. And back then your junior rights in the Western Hockey League could get traded. Even though you weren't with a team, they could trade your rights. So my rights got traded three or four times because People had hoped, I guess, with those teams, I was going to go to play major junior, but I didn't want to. And I got drafted at a Penticton. And the crazy part about that, guys, is in January of 1982, my coach in Penticton said, if you keep playing like this, you're going to get drafted. And I said, when? Like, I thought my draft year was the next year because I'm an August 23rd birthday. So I thought that was too late and I would be into the next year. Could you imagine a kid today not knowing their draft year? Like, it's impossible. But I had no idea. So I got drafted to Penticton, or out of Penticton. I had signed my scholarship to go to Northern Michigan. And then the Portland Winterhawks of the Western Hockey League were going to be the first team to ever host the Memorial Cup. They traded for my rights. And they said, we want you to come. And I thought naively as a 17 year old would well since i'm already drafted the quickest way to the nhl is to go to junior not college so i didn't i never went to college i went to the memorial or went to portland we won the memorial cup and that summer as an 18 year old me and four other guys got traded for one guy for one player so it was a five for one i was part of the five and i ended up in brandon i got there the day before the first game practiced didn't know anybody, scored three goals the first game, got three goals the second game. And I didn't even really know how to explain it because, you know, I, I had 40 goals in 50 games the year before. And, I, you know, I averaged a goal and a half a game. I mean, I, I didn't even really know how to explain it very well, but, man, it was fun. It was, it was pretty amazing. Who is the one in that trade? A guy by the name of Blaine Crest. He was a 15-year-old phenom. I think he, he went to Portland. I think he played five years in the Western League, but never really advanced past that. And so, yeah, the five of us went, and I didn't really want to go. It was too far from home. And my dad, who was always just this calm, sage man who never played hockey, who just worked and worked and worked and supported his family. And He's like, Raymond, I, I think you should go. I mean, these guys, they wanted you in the trade. He was overlooking the fact that there was five of us for one. I mean, they didn't want me that bad. And uh, so anyway, I, I went and and it was just, it was magic. It, it was great. 
We've asked some of the guys that have played junior, especially in the Western Hockey League, about those bus rides. But Brandon is as far as it gets in terms of the WHL. You got to go a long way to get pretty much everywhere. So how tough were those bus rides? And I guess they couldn't have been too bad if you put up 108 goals in 72 games. Well, okay, it's like a lot of things. If you didn't know any different, you don't even really think about it. And so we'd get on the bus and go, man, it does suck to go four and a half hours for our closest game to Prince Albert and have Dave Manson and Ken Baumgartner scare the hell out of you, which is what they did. I mean, that was a defense pair, those two guys. Like nobody wanted to go in front of the net with them. Like they were terrifying, but you just, it was just the way it was. It was, I don't know if that makes any sense. Like there's things you guys are doing now that in 20 years, you're going to go, what was I doing? Like, why did I think that was the only way? Because you'll, you know, like, but at the time, that's all we thought. Now, I know you guys, you told me you had Glenn Healy on here, and which, of course, is, you know, heels will make your ears bleed. But he, um, he always used to say about when I, when I, um, you know, when I scored those goals, that the only reason that I could score was because I was so short that I could, you know, because Glenn's so tall. But anyway, that I was so short that I could sleep on the bus. And he said, if you look at every guy that sets records in the Western League, they're short because they can sleep on the bus. And I didn't really have a comeback. You know, I'm like, well, maybe that is true. I don't know. So maybe he had it. Well, we also had Jamie McLennan on the pod. And of course, his famous story of bringing the crock pot on the bus. So that's certainly unbelievable. Yeah. (laughs) Like when I first heard that, I'm like, this must be a made up story why they call them noodles. It had to be. Turns out it wasn't. And I just think that's amazing. It's really something else. But, you know, we talk about things that are of a different hockey era. You know, the Hartford Whalers, of course, have now long Mm -hmm. since relocated to Carolina. So we haven't had the chance to talk to many guys who played in Hartford because, you know, Hartford's not that far from Long Island, but, you know, the NHL being there feels like a world away. So take us back to your time with the Whalers and just what was the hockey scene like in Hartford when you were playing with the Whale? Well, I, I loved it. I thought it was an amazing place to play. Now, times in Hartford were different than the the insurance industry was centered in Hartford. So it was a vibrant downtown. There was lots of people working in the downtown core, the arena, which everybody used to make fun of and said, oh, the rink was in a mall. If you look at, which it was, by the way, my first stereo I ever bought by myself was in the mall that I walked out after practice into the mall, bought it and carried it to my car. If you look at now, arenas are in the middle of entertainment districts. It's the same thing. Like if you think about it, it, the mall in Hartford attached to the rink is the same thing as a rink in the middle of an entertainment district. It's, it's exactly the same thing. But when the insurance business, they moved to New Jersey kind of en masse, and that really decimated the core of the economic engine of Hartford, and it really hurt it. But in Hartford, there was Ron Francis, Kevin Deneen, myself, Ulf Samuelson, Dean Evason, Paul McDermott, probably forgetting a couple. There was six or seven of us that all grew up together. It, like we were all the same age. And it was, it was an amazing place to play. And when I got traded from Hartford to the Islanders, I was really disappointed because I didn't know anything about, the only thing I knew was the Marriott and the Coliseum, because we'd bus in, stay overnight, go to the game and bus home. 
never saw anything else. Had no idea how beautiful the island was away from that big parking lot, because that's all that I ever saw. I'll, I'll give you a funny story about when I got traded. So I get home from practice in Hartford. Things aren't going very well. I'm, you know, anyway, there's a message on my phone. Back in the day, you used to have a red flashing light on your answering machine. So I punched the button. It's uh, Eddie Johnson's assistant in Hartford, the general manager. Ray, it's uh, Eddie's assistant. Uh, please give us a call when you get back. So I'm like, oh boy. I mean, they're not calling to see what I wanted for lunch, right? I mean, I just came home from the rink. So I call him and the assistant says, uh, well, actually uh, EJ's out for lunch. So I hang up. I still know I'm traded, but I don't know where. About a half an hour later, phone rings. I take a deep breath. I'm like, well, this is it. I pick up the phone. It's Bill Torrey, who I've never met. Hello, Ray, Bill Torrey. You know, he's got that big voice Bill had. And the Ray, Bill Torrey uh, from the Islanders. I said, oh, I guess I'm coming to the Islanders. And he said, you don't know yet? And I said, no, I haven't talked to EJ. I got a message into him. He's out to lunch. And Bill says, I'll say, call me when he calls you. And so I, that was it. I hung up. That's how I knew I was coming to the Islanders. So Eddie called a few minutes later, Ray, we've traded you to the Islanders. I said, yeah, I know I talked to Bill already. And he said, you did? And he's like, yeah, okay, well, talk to Bill. They'll deal with all your travel stuff. And so that was it. That's how I found out I was with the Islanders. Well, still in, in Hartford, obviously these days you're doing a lot with ESPN and Bristol right mm -hmm. near Hartford. Was there any sort of connection between the Whalers and, and some players like yourself who may have known that uh, had a potential future in broadcasting to get to know the ESPN guys at all? No, never met any of them. Didn't know any of them. It's hard to imagine that at one time ESPN was a really small little thing, right? In 1986, when we were there, you know, ESPN is not what it is now. It used to be literally one building. It's a campus now. I don't know how, I think there's nine buildings there. And so, you know, the, we didn't realize that probably the reason we were on Sports Center highlights as much as we were is the team was down the street and they could send a camera. Like we just thought that we were a big deal. I don't know. Like it was just because the guy, the camera guy could drive down the road and, you know, and put us, you know, put some highlight NHL highlights on. So there was no connection whatsoever. I mean, you talk about taking the bus down to Long Island too. I'm just thinking about how centrally located Hartford is. You could probably bus to the Rangers, the Islanders, the Devils, probably the Bruins too. And I mean, you just think about. We did Bruins and Flyers sometimes too, depending on too. the trip. Yeah. So I thought the guys out West used to complain all the time about travel. Like, I'm like, oh my God, here goes another Western team complaining about travel all the time. And then I got traded, you know, from the Rangers to LA. And the first month I'm like, oh my God, we're in the plane all the time. Like there is a significant difference in travel East to West. I didn't realize how good we had it in Hartford. I mean, we were literally, you'd go play a game and come back home. You're in your own bed most of the time. It was, it was way easier. Yeah, we talked to Bo Horvat about that after he got traded, you know, from Vancouver. And not even just the fact that Vancouver's got notoriously bad travel, but how about the year with that Canadian division where Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa are in the same division as Vancouver? I mean, that's that's bad pretty much for everybody involved. So yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody won that that for sure. That was uh, that was a that was a tough year for the entire planet. But in this in this uh 
in this scenario, east to west travel is is pretty difficult. So early 90s Islanders, I mean, we've got a lot of great travel stories from the likes of Brian Trache, Billy Smith, uh, some of the you know the dynasty guys, even I think all the way up to the Kelly Rudy days. But were the Islanders still flying commercial in the early 90s? And do you have any good travel stories of, you know, seat mates or maybe getting stuck in a middle seat or anything like that? The middle, we did fly commercial. Yeah, for sure. When we won game six against the Penguins in 93, I'm not so sure anybody thought we were going to win that because they didn't have any tickets booked to fly back to Pittsburgh. So that scrambled to get us on the plane to go back to Pittsburgh. And I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was Brad Delgarno or Yui crew, both of them enormous humans was in a middle seat on a U.S. Air flight, there was, it was U.S. Air at the time, flying back to Pittsburgh. Like we had no seats. So yeah, you get middle seat, you'd always trade with the rookies, bad break kid, you gotta sit in the middle, I'll take your window, I'll take your aisle. And um, there was no, there was no charters, no, like that, that wasn't a thing. Not very often anyway. Okay, so this isn't an Islander story, but this happened on the island. Late in my career, I'm in Atlanta. We have a road game in Long Island. We get there a full day and a half before the game for whatever reason. We're staying at the Garden City Hotel. We go out for lunch. There's me, Chris Tamer, Jeff Odgers, and Sean Donovan. We go for lunch. It's kind of late afternoon. Lunch kind of leaks into dinner a little bit. You know, we had a couple while we're sitting there. Somehow we get separated and I go back to the hotel. I get back there and my key doesn't work. So I go back down to the desk. I got to get a new key. I come back. I open the door and my room is like 5,000 degrees. It's so hot. Like I could feel the heat. And I step in and now I want you to picture a hotel room. Okay. Just picture what's in a hotel room. Everything is stacked on the bed everything the dresser the tables the lamps the shower curtains over the top all the stuff out of the bathroom is all on this desk on top of my bed so these guys have gotten into my room and basically attacked it so i go into the bathroom and there's nothing in the bathroom it's like it's just been constructed there's nothing there so i'm like okay what else did these guys do so i flush the toilet and they'd taken the little tube that goes off the flusher thing that goes into the bigger tube into the drain and they had wedged it so it shot the water straight out. So had I gone back and sat down on the toilet, that would have hit me right in the middle of the back. So now I, gotta, I had to call the front desk to get somebody to come up to the room to help me lift all this stuff off the bed. I, it was one of the greatest in-room pranks and that happened that happened on the island i don't know if you can tell us this but who is there doing that to somebody who has played over a thousand games in the nhl you hear pranks like that so i just told you chris tamer chris oh, tamer guys. jeff okay. Rogers, and sean donovan so when i got traded it was during a game in atlanta i got traded to st louis so i had to leave before the end of the game and uh, i took their shoes with me to st louis until they told me they did it 
to my room, I wasn't going to send their shoes back. And so, yeah, that, that, that I thought it was a piece of brilliance to get into my room to, yeah, that was, that was outstanding. So we have to talk 1993 because that was such a yeah. remarkable run. But even during the regular season, you didn't clinch a playoff spot until the very end. So when was it during the course of that run did you realize, all right, we got a chance to make some magic here? And then, if, obviously, as we all know, things really changed towards the end of that, that capital series. But really, where was it? Was it even during the regular season where you said, okay, this, this is a group that we just got to put it together? Take us through 1993. Well, 93 was the was a real strange year for me. In November of that year, I got shoved into the boards in Chicago. I was on a breakaway and uh, Cam Russell shoved me from behind and I lost my balance and I hit the end boards and I broke my leg and dislocated my ankle. And so I missed three months. And so whatever was going on with the team, I was never around. Like when you rehab, you're, you're never with the team. I was at a rehab facility. It's not like now where the teams do all or most of their rehab on site because they have better facilities. We didn't have it then. So I wasn't around for most of, most of the year. And the team was just kind of teetering right around the playoff edge. It wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. It was just kind of in the middle. And so I came back with six games left. And the first three games, like – I'm going north, the puck's going south. I'm going east, the puck's going west. Like, I'm just way behind the play. So we have a game in Long Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the game was, was at the Coliseum. And the next night, we were playing somewhere on the road. And I was in the stick room, which was right next to Al's office, to the coach's office. And so I hear Al say to the trainer, Joey McMahon, he says, Joey, go get me the seagull because he called me the seagull. He said that, you know, if I wasn't squawking, I was shedding, which apparently that's what seagulls do. I'm not really sure, but anyway, he always called me the seagull. So now I'm like, oh boy, this isn't going to be good. I can, you could just hear it in his voice. So I go and hide. So it takes Joey a few minutes to find me to say, Al needs to talk to you. Because I'm figuring by that time, Al will have, you know, kind of calmed down a little bit. So I go to the office, I knock on the door, I get one step inside the office and Al says, Seagull, you got three games to get going, which is all we had left in the season. And if you can't get going, I'm going to have to use somebody else. And if you can't get going, you're going to be sitting with Claire. Claire, of course, was his, his wife. And he said, and she's been in the same damn seats for 22 years. So the point was pretty clear. You got three games to get going. If not, I'm not going to play you in the playoffs because you're not up to speed. Here's the beauty of Al. And one of the many things I loved about the man, he gave me a chance. And he said, and if you can't do it, I'm going to have to do what's good for the team. Like, how can you not appreciate that and how straightforward and simple it was? So I scored in two of the last three games and then the playoffs started. And, you know, we'll get to that in a sec, but we lost the second last game of the year to Ottawa. I think yeah. it was their only road win. And yeah. we were like, I remember being in that game because one of their defensemen was a teammate of mine in Hartford, Brad Shaw. They started the wrong lineup somehow. 
we scored on the power play and I looked out at him. He was on the ice. I was on the bench and we were laughing like, this is ridiculous. They couldn't even get the right lineup out there. Anyway, they beat us and we had to win to get in. And once we, you know, we clinched, the only thing we were worried about was, boy, I hope we don't get Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh won 17 in a row coming into the playoffs. And I will remember, I know I've got this right. You can look it up, but the first game of the playoffs, Pittsburgh played in the afternoon. We played at night and Pittsburgh smashed Jersey. I want to say it was like eight, two or something like that. They crushed them. And we were going to our game going, thank goodness that could have been us. And then we lost the first game anyway to Washington. The next day we had practice. We were going to the practice rink. Al kicked everybody off the bus except the players. And he said, I don't know if you guys are happy to be here, but this isn't good enough. If you don't think we can win this series, get off the bus. If you think you need to practice today, practice. If you think you need a day off, take a day off. But we have to be better. And then we won the next three games and went on to win. Like, again, Al was like so direct. Average isn't good enough. Yeah. And we went on and, you know, for me, it turned out to be the greatest month of my hockey life. Three straight wins in games two, three, and four against the Capitals all came in overtime. Two of those were in double overtime. How much credit does that go to Al of just knowing how to keep a team composed in playoff overtime? He never, ever, ever, ever was flustered. So, like, whatever happened, he just went on with it. And there is almost an osmosis that happens. If your coach is yelling at the refs and screaming and yelling and looks unsure behind the bench, I, I think it falls through to the players. Al never had that. The other thing that happened was, I, I know, like, you know, people focus on the overtime wins and goals, which, you know, was lucky enough to be in the right place for. But none of that happens without heels having the month of his life too. Like somebody sent me a video of the game seven in Pittsburgh. This was a bunch of years ago. I had no idea heels played as great as he did. I remembered we had a three, one lead and we kicked it away late. I didn't know that heels made 40 plus saves. I had totally erased that from my mind. We don't do what we did in that playoffs without Glenn Healy. I mean, you yourself in that Washington series, I think you had eight goals. You had four goals in a single game. I mean, you know, just take us through the, obviously that series ends with the really unfortunate cheap shot on Turge. So maybe just take us through what the end of that series was like. And then, you know, you guys are going up to face this juggernaut in Pittsburgh. Obviously Turge is out of commission for the start of that series. So just, you know, was there another big talk there? Was there another kind of galvanizing moment or, you know, how did you guys take that step from Washington into Pittsburgh, knowing what had just happened with Dale Hunter. Okay, so we, we're up 3-1. We go to Wash. We lose 6-4. That's the game I got four goals, which was crazy. You know, like, I mean, every time the puck fell down, it just fell on my stick and I shot it in the net. You know, like, it was amazing. And so we go back home, and, man, for people that never were in the Coliseum, when it was rock and I feel sorry for you because the, it felt like the roof was right on top of your head. The noise, you could feel the, you could feel your feet vibrating. It was amazing. I loved that place. We score, we make it, I think eight, four, at the eight, five, seven, four, something like that. Hunter hits Turge, which, you know, of course was way, way, way after the play. And so 
if Pierre was in the lineup for the Pittsburgh series at the start or Pierre wasn't, there was zero chance we were winning that series. Like nobody was going to pick us to win. Pittsburgh won 17 in a row. They beat the Devils in five games. So they'd won 21 of 22 games. And we were like this collection of guys. Chris Cuthbert, who's a legendary broadcaster in Canada, did the series. And I ended up working with him for a decade. And he said he, he used to call us, we were his favorite senior league team. You know, we were just like a bunch of guys. And so without Turge, now, of course, this gets incredibly hard. It was already hard, but this was going to get incredibly hard. So we have a meeting and Al goes around the room and he basically asks every player, can you play even like with me, with Ron Francis for a shift? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And then he'd ask the next guy, can you do this? Can you do this for five minutes? Can you do it for a period? The point being, you don't have to be better than them for seven games in a row. You have to be better than them in this shift. And when this shift is over, then start again. And so we won game one, three, one. And this probably should have been an indication as, as I look back that it was going to be our time. I scored one shorthanded goal in 1,258 NHL games and however many playoff games I played. And it was in game one. I took a penalty a couple of minutes into the first period. Somebody else took a penalty right after me. We were down five on three. Come out of the bench or out of the penalty box. The puck jumps over Larry Murphy's stick. I get a breakaway and score. I wasn't killing the penalty. I was coming out of the box. But we still had a guy. So that's the only shorthanded goal that I scored. We won game one, lost game two. Now we're in the series. We think like, why can't we play with them? Like, like why not? We split the next couple of games. It's 2-2. We lose. You know, so now we're, each time the series advances, it's worse for Pittsburgh and better for us. Because there's no pressure, zero on us. I don't remember feeling nervous in that series. At 2-2, we're still not going to win. We go to Pittsburgh, we lose game three. We come back to New York, Tom Fitzgerald scores two short-handed goals in the same penalty kill. Like, how is this even happening? And then we go back for game seven. There's, I don't know if that point they even respected us or not, or if they were nervous or what, but we didn't, I didn't, wasn't even really, I'm like, man, we're in game seven. Why can't we win? And we did. It was like, it was the, you could put that lineup on the board against Pittsburgh's lineup for the next 50 years. And take the team names off and nobody would pick our lineup over theirs. Nobody, except we won. That's, that's sport, man. That's just why you play. And you're involved in one of the better highlights in Islanders history, setting up David Volokh for the overtime winner in game seven mm. to advance to the conference final. And then after the game, Stan Fischler grabs you. And that is one of the greatest interviews ever. I think Stan, who, how many thousands of interviews has he done has said that that's maybe his favorite interview we got no respect from anybody we got no respect from the pittsburgh penguins and we're going to the semis and they're going home and that is wonderful is there any way to describe this feeling no 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 way to describe it i mean but we're not going to montreal to be tourists we're not going there to uh take a look at the well whatever you look at in montreal we're just going to play and win a hockey game and and continue this role i mean this is 
most of us dream of this. We're going to the semis, and this is unbelievable. Do you remember that and, and just the emotions that you were able to pour out to Stan in the locker room after the game? Or I think it was even maybe slightly well, outside the locker room. It was. That's the crazy part. If you look in the back, like the trainers are loading the sticks, like we got to get going. And somehow Stan got to that place, I think because he's Stan and he was whoever told him he couldn't go there. Stan's like, yeah, beat it. And he and he just got there. And I I've always I always had a good rapport with Stan. You know, I talked to him, of course, through the years with the Islanders. And and that interview for me was I, I not I think I know we felt disrespected throughout that entire series. We know that the hockey world and the penguins at that time were looking at us like these guys don't belong here. They don't belong in this series. And to win in the fashion that we did, like you got to go, it was three, one and Yui Krupp takes a two minute penalty with Mario Lemieux. So they're off the ice in the last four minutes or five minutes, Lemieux's in the penalty box somewhere. Like how could this be any better for us? except Ron Francis scored twice. So, you know, you're, you're up here. Now you're, you're just flattened. We go into overtime. We're sitting there and Steve Thomas says uh, in the locker room, he's like, guys, like if we could have gotten here at the start, wouldn't we love to be here? Like, it was like, it was all like this movie that was, we were in that just didn't feel like we were in it. And so that interview was just like, I remember it and I've watched it a bunch of times, just like, like relief and satisfaction and joy and vindication for a lot of us. I mean, maybe outside of heels. Well, I guess Steve Stumpy went to the finals with Anaheim, but many of us would never have as great a, a feeling on the ice as we did at that time. That like that, even though you don't know it at the time, that becomes the pinnacle of of what a lot of us got a chance to do can you i mean i would imagine of like plays that are probably just crystallized in your mind is the pass to david volick one of them and mm -hmm. can you walk us through it and samuelson's pass off a skate volick turns with ferraro here they come two on one volick shoots scores david volick islanders and there'll be a new stanley cup champion in 1993 Yeah, look, David, first of all, David's an amazing guy who had a terrible year, had all kinds of back issues. The owners wanted David traded at one point. You know, they're like, you can't help us. Why don't we move him? And Al and Bill were like, no, this guy can play. And it was frustrating for the team. It was frustrating for David. So David gets in the lineup and really, had, you know, nothing had gone easy for him. He scored in the third period. And that play, there was a turnover. And it's a two-on-one. And as the puck's going up the ice, I know David's on his left, on my right, left shot. And I don't recall for one second thinking I was going to shoot. Like, I, I don't think it's a good play when a player has a two-on-one from, like, the red line in to keep it and shoot it. And the reason I don't is because the goalie comes out and he can square up to you. He knows his angle. He's right on it. If you can make him move with the pass, you you gain an advantage. I've always felt that as a broadcaster, I see it too. So as we're going in, I mean, that pass was 
was mine. I love that pass, the little feather pass over the defenseman stick. And David Shot gets Barrasso moving the wrong, you know, moving too far. He loses the angle. It goes over his glove. And when I jumped on David in the corner, I could hear Glenn Healy yelling from the far end of the rink. The rink was so quiet. Like we got buried, David and I, and everybody jumping on the pile. And I could hear heels yelling from the end of the rink. Honestly, guys, the, the greatest moment I've had a part of in my career was that play, that pass, that goal, that celebration. It was amazing. That's one of my favorite parts of that highlight, because even now an 18,000 seat building in Pittsburgh in the playoffs, you probably have 500 Islander fans back then in 93. How many Islander fans were in attendance to make any type of noise? Probably none or maybe a dozen. I was going to say why, seven. Yeah, yeah. And that's why in the highlight, you can hear all of you guys screaming. And now I know that it's probably heels more than anybody else when I watch that highlight. And that's just a, a little bit of a different era. You know, now you have more fans in, yep. in road buildings that can celebrate. And obviously on the ice, it's a little different than in the crowd, but just the, you know, it would have been incredible. You know, what would have been incredible is if the mics on the ice were as good then as they are now, like you would have heard more clearly, even more clearly how quiet the building was and how excited we all were. And nobody spoils springs in Pittsburgh more than the Islanders do for many different reasons. 1975, 82, we could go on and on and on. So it's just a, it's, it's a nice highlight yeah, to look back, even it, if you guys didn't it, win the cup. Fit. Yeah. I, it's funny, you know, we lost two overtime games to Montreal in that series. In both games, we had a breakaway in overtime guys. We would have wanted with the breakaway too, Pierre Turgeon and Benny Hogue. And, Neither scored. You know, it's just the way it goes. But what if they would have scored? We would have been up three games to one. Who knows? Well, we've talked a lot about your friendship with Glenn Healy. There's another goalie I want to ask about. You guys were actually teammates in junior two in Ron Hextall. And I have to give credit to Jamie McLennan because we saw this clip on an old TSN interview he did. But he told a great story about... You guys were out at lunch somewhere before a game and a waiter spilled some chicken grease on Ron Hextall and Hexy vowed to, I guess, take it out on somebody in the game and Jamie McLennan went in. I mean, do you remember that? Can you take us through that and just any good moments there with uh, Ron Hextall? It's really amazing because if you talk to Hexy now, well, not just today, but in the last 20 years, he's really measured. He's really calm. Whatever you saw on the ice was just not what Ron was like once he retired. The fire that burned in him was hotter than almost everybody. And so there was a, you know, when he first got there, he sat in the first stall, the goalie stall, right by the door. And he always put his stick next to his stall. Well, his stick had a knob on the top of it of tape, you know, like it was quite big. So the door wouldn't open and the trainers couldn't wedge it open or close it rather with his stick there. So one of the trainers said, hey, you've known Hexy. Can you tell him to move his stick? Because they were scared to tell him. And I'm like, I'm not telling him. You tell him. I'm not going to do that because that, that would not have gone well. So he, he was superstitious to, you know, one pad on, one pad off. Equipment went on in the same direction, always banging his posts, always in the same way. If you scored on him in practice, look out. 
He was not going to be happy, which of course for us guys, when we scored on him, we, you know, you'd tease him, right? You'd be like, it's behind you, Hexy, dig it out and all that stuff. So that game, I didn't know it at the time, the implication of the spilled sauce. Noodles knew. Noodles knew what that meant. And so I think there's probably a lot of times that uh, a spare goalie goes into the game, the backup goes in and he's just sitting there wearing a hat and he knows he's not going in anyway. Jamie, as he's told that story, he was on high alert that something might go off the rails. And yeah, it didn't take much. Back then, it didn't take much. Or was that the story where uh, Al was asking Ray to go to the corner to to tell? Or was no, that a no, different? That, was that uh, a different story? That was in St. Louis. That was in St. Louis. Steve Weeks started in goal for us, and Heels was pissed that he wasn't in goal. And Brett Hull got a hat trick halfway through the second period. They're throwing hats on the ice, and they're playing the Budweiser song. You know that 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 you know like the Budweiser commercial, which they played in St. Louis. And Al says, "Go get Healy." So I go down there and Heels is sitting on a chair. The guys are coming out on the ice with the shovels to pick up the hats. And Heels is shaking his head. Nope, not going. I'm like, Heels, Al says, you got to go in. He says, you tell him to go in the net. I'm like, come on, Heels. So I turn around, I go back and Al goes, where's Healy? I said, he said, he's not coming. He's like, you go get him. So I got to turn around and skeet through the shovel guys again to go get Heels. And I'm like, Heels, go get in the net, man. He's going to kill me. And so finally heels came in there, but it was, oh man, he was so, heels is so stubborn. It was so funny. Well, you've become one of the most accomplished broadcasters in your post-playing career, but from what we understand, you were also known as Radio Ray during your Islander tenure. Some days where you were injured and not able to play, you ended up on the radio broadcasts. How did that come to be and how much did you love doing that? Well, that was the year I broke my leg. That was the year uh, 92, 93, and I was out for three months and Barry Landers was the uh, radio voice and he asked, you know, or somebody asked, do you want to come on the air? And I'm like, I, sure. I mean, I did it a few times. I don't know how many, but it was kind of fun, right? I'm watching the game. I'm commenting on the game. Never, never a thought that this could be a career, right? Like I, 1993, I played 10 extra years. And so for 10 more years from that, but when I got traded from the Rangers to LA, the team was out of the playoffs. And a fella who just passed away, his name was Barry Sachs at ESPN. Big Ranger fan, so knew me from the Islanders and the interviews and things, and I guess just the way I was around. He called my agent and said, hey, would Ray like to come in and do some TV work? And I mean, I was still playing. I was in 1996 now, and I'm not, no, no thought of retirement. So I said, sure, I don't know what I'm doing, but yeah, I'll go there. And I went there, and it must have been okay, because they brought me back the next year, and so I often said the fact that L.A. wasn't very good was great for my post career because I got actual reps on television while I was still playing. And then it kind of fed off itself. And I always thought I would coach, to be honest with you. Then it became, you know, gee, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I retired. I came back to Vancouver and I got a call to audition for the Oilers color job. I'd never done any color work, one game. So I went and auditioned. I got the job. I retired in May of 02, and I started broadcasting in October of 02. So I never really have left. I'm just incredibly, incredibly fortunate to do it. Well, I want to ask, because 
Kelly said when he did CBC for the first time that the first time that the camera went on and he was doing a live at the desk, he said he was more nervous for that than any game playing in net. I want to say Noodles had a similar thing where he's talking on air and he sees like some spit fly out and he's just horrified. Do you remember that first time being on camera? Like, were you nervous? Was it, oh, yeah. you know, uh, tell us about it. Terrified. No, no idea what to do. I mean, like I got there at three 30 in the afternoon we had meetings and the show NHL tonight went on at like 1130. Like I'd been there for eight hours. I'd So there's only at the time, there was only two cameras, right? You're either looking at the first camera or the second camera and the producer's talking in my ear, which I'd never had before. So you have to picture it. If I'm talking to you about Monday, the producer's telling me about Tuesday because he's telling me what's coming next. So it's very confusing and it feels fast and pressure. And he's telling me camera two, camera two. Well, I don't know which one's camera two. If I had taken a half a second, I would have looked. It was the one with the big two taped on it. Like there was a number two, like enormous on each camera one, camera two, that's it. But when you're on there the first time, you have like to what Kelly and Jamie said, like no idea what's going on. I, I finished the show. I do remember this leaving and going, I have no idea if that was good, terrible or otherwise. Like no idea. I have no idea what I said. I just hope it's okay that I get to come back again. Like I had no idea. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about another one of your stops. We got the chance to talk about Hartford, which is no longer in the NHL and Atlanta. You spent almost three seasons in Atlanta, including their inaugural year in 1999, 2000. So towards the end of your playing days, but you had some success there. 76-point campaign in year number two. What was it like getting to play in, in the capital of Georgia? Interesting, um, because the expansion rules were far different. You know, this you know the last couple of teams that come in, they get way better players to select. As you can see in evidence, by the way, Vegas went to the final, and here's Seattle in year two. We had a terrible team in Atlanta. Terrible. We won 14 games the first year. Do you know how hard that is to do? There's 82 chances. We won 14. And so I will say it was exciting and interesting and then just demoralizing because no matter how well you played, you just, you weren't going to win. We had some of the most incredible people on those teams. You know, I mentioned Jeff Rogers and Chris Tamer and Sean Donovan. Andrew Brunette has you know, is one of my all-time favorite teammates, one of the funniest good people in the game that I ever had the chance to play with. I really liked it, although there was a sense that, you know, for me, I'm like, hey, I'm 36, 37, 38 years old. The road's coming to the, a dead end here. I could see where it was going, and it's hard to accept that because it was all I'd ever done. I loved it. I loved playing. I was so proud to play in the NHL. And I knew it was coming to an end. So Atlanta was was challenging beyond belief. I will say this, one other thing. Maybe I shouldn't take it so personally, but since you brought it up, two of the six teams I played for no longer exist. And I wonder if there's a connection between me playing for them and them not being there. Greg and I were talking about this before you joined. Your jersey collection, if you've got them all up in the office, between those you know, Atlanta jerseys, the Whalers jersey, the mid to late nineties Kings, like you got a pretty good Jersey collection though. You know what? I, um, my wife and I don't, 
We have a few jerseys up. My wife, for those that don't know, is Cami Granado. And um, so we have her gold medal winning jersey up, my all-star game jersey up, my first Hartford jersey, and this plaque. Well, it's plaque. It's an enormous thing that the NHLPA sent when I retired. And it has pictures of me in all six jerseys, timeline of my career, history through that those years, my contract history, and a write-up. And it's it's amazing. But that's all we have up. We're just, I don't know, I didn't want to build a shrine to me. And, you know, I mean, she's got, I can't even get her to put her gold medal on the wall. It's the first gold medal ever awarded in women's hockey. She was the captain of the 98 team. So the captain gets the medal first. The first women's medal ever awarded is in a drawer here. It's not on the wall. And that's just kind of the way we do it. I do have, I've got the Joker jersey from LA, which was a terrible jersey. I've got the Thrasher jersey. I got, you know, I got some pretty colorful ones there for sure, but they're not up. Ray, it was a pleasure getting to hear throughout every stop of your career. And thank you so much for the time. Uh, you bet, guys. Uh, good luck with everything. And uh, you know what? I've never been out to the new rink. And so um, maybe next year, I've, n- I've never been scheduled there. So maybe next year I'll get a chance to see what it's like. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.